Hey, Dante. Hey, Hannah. It's the first episode. Yeah, I'm so excited to introduce the world to I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self. So what can our listeners expect from this new series? Well, it is a blog and podcast series from DBSA that was created to share the experiences of young adults who live with depression or bipolar. In the I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self podcast series, we will hear from young adults as they talk about their first brush with the mood disorder and the challenges that they have overcome. This first episode features one of our favorite people from the DBSA Young Adult Council, um, our cherished secretary, Olivia. Yeah, we're excited to hear Olivia's letter. After we hear Olivia's letter, you will hear an interview I did with Olivia to talk a little bit more about the experiences of writing her letter and the journey that she's been on. I'm really excited for everyone to hear her story. I think it's a really powerful piece. And I hope when you listen, you'll feel less alone wherever you are on your journey to wellness. And maybe it will inspire some of our listeners to write letters of their own. We can only hope. So if you're interested in learning more about I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self, head over to dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof. We'd love to be able to share your story with our audience. Okay, I think we should dive into Olivia's letter, Dante. I think you're right. So she titled her letter, I'm Living Proof, Wellness is Trending Upwards. Yes, and I can't think of a better title to launch the new series with. I think many of us know wellness or recovery isn't always linear, Mm -hmm. but I like how Olivia identifies for us that wellness is trending upwards. So without further ado, let's hear from Olivia. Dear Olivia, I know it's tough right now. I remember clearly how painful it was when your best friend told one of the school counselors about how you self-harm. You feel betrayed, but even worse, you feel alone, like no one would understand or care about what you're feeling. You feel like you're about to become a big burden to the people around you. That's simply not true. In a few years, your experience with mental health may even help save lives but that doesn't change how you feel now, and you're certainly not to blame for how you're feeling. You'll grow and gain a lot of new experiences in the next decade. Stigma is real and it's harmful. Your best friend saw what was left behind after you self-harmed, and you explained as best you could what happened. You also asked them to keep it a secret. You didn't freely offer the information up to them, and you certainly haven't shared your mental health concerns with family members, teachers, or coaches. You feel like opening up to other people would be useless, if not outright harmful, but that couldn't be further from the truth. In a few years, you'll receive inpatient treatment. As part of that, you'll be strongly encouraged to attend group therapy sessions. For the first day or two, it will be scary. You'll go because you want to get out. You'll curl into yourself in the chair and shake, but you'll also pay attention to what the other people are saying. After a few sessions, you'll start to open up too. When you're released, you'll start to attend DBSA meetings in your hometown. When you make the difficult decision to go back to college and try another semester, you'll start going to NAMI meetings every other week. But imagine this, you'll find that isn't enough. Peer connection and support will become so important to you that you'll start a DBSA chapter in college. You'll facilitate meetings weekly and do everything you can to make the people who attend feel comfortable, safe, and heard. 
You have a lot of love in your heart. For years, you've bottled in your worries and struggles because you think sharing them will make you a burden. Eventually, you'll learn that sharing your experiences is liberating and even helpful to those around you. Every time you share your story, the stigma around mental health breaks down a little more, both in the people around you and in yourself. It may be hard to believe, but in just six years, you'll be standing in front of a group of more than 50 of your peers in college, sharing your experiences, offering guidance for reaching out to loved ones, and directing them to campus resources. And get this, you'll do that more than once. Perhaps most surprising of all, you'll never have a negative reaction. In fact, people will walk up to you after the presentation, the next day in the food court, or even months later at a party. They'll thank you for being so open and honest. Sometimes that's as far as it will go. Other times, they'll share some experiences of their own with you. And every once in a while, they'll ask you to come to their dorm or apartment and help them talk to their roommate to help direct them to resources and to let them know there's nothing to be ashamed of and that they are not hurting alone. You should also know that it will take time to get better. There will be setbacks. Some will feel impossible to recover from, but your past experiences have made you strong and you have a lot of people in your life who are willing to provide support, a listening ear, a personal story of hope, or even a simple distraction like watching a funny movie or going on a walk. The path to wellness isn't a straight line, but it's trending upwards. Love, Olivia. Thank you for sharing with us, Olivia. That was that letter was very powerful. Thank you. Just first and foremost, what was it like to write to yourself, write to your younger self? Tell us about it, that experience a little bit. It was sort of a daunting task at first. I sat down a few times and looked at my computer screen and just didn't even know where to start. Um, and so it was, I had to keep coming back to it over and over again. But once I finally started just putting the words on the paper, I didn't stop. It was just sort of a, a stream of consciousness thing. Uh, once I realized that, you know, it's a computer and I can go back and edit really easily and I didn't have to put all this pressure on myself, I just let the feelings flow. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me about your letter is you confided in a friend, a, a best friend, someone who was also a teen at the time, right? And that experience kind of backfired on you. How, how did that feel? How did you feel in the moment? I would say at the time it felt like it backfired, but in hindsight, looking back now, almost 10 years later, it was actually a good thing that that happened. Um, so my friend was the same age as me. We were both in eighth grade and he had noticed, I think we were swimming or something like that. And he had noticed the self-harm marks. And I said, look, you know, I trust you. You're my best friend. Let me share a little bit about what's going on with you just so you can understand and you're not, your, your brain isn't turning constantly about what this is. And that was in the late summer. And throughout most of the school year, he was a good support. He was there when I needed him. Uh, and then in March of eighth grade, he went to the school counselor um, 
which at the time as an eighth grader, I was really mad and I couldn't understand why he would betray me like that. But looking back as an adult, that was the smart move for him to make because there was no way for him to know how intense my symptoms were going to get. And he cared. So when I wasn't able to ask for help, he was there to ask for help for me. Um, And that was really the start of me getting treatment, honestly. Um, my The school counselor told my parents, and then my parents took me to the pediatrician, and she referred me to a therapist. And so that's where my official journey with treatment started. You know, like I said in the letter, I, and sometimes I still struggle with these feelings, but definitely in middle school and high school, I felt like asking for help made me a burden and that people didn't care and they wouldn't understand. And that that's obviously not the case. So I don't know how long it would have taken me to ask for help on my own, or if I ever would have, but, you know, I'd like to think that I would have, but it's, it's hard looking back at yourself as a middle schooler and high schooler right. to, to make those decisions. It would, it would be difficult. Um, so he was, he was actually a really big help and something I didn't mention in the letter when he told the counselor in March of eighth grade, I was furious with him. I, I didn't talk to him or look at him for the rest of the school year. Um, and then we went to the same high school mm-hmm. and for freshman year, didn't talk to him, didn't look at him. And then in 10th grade, I realized, you know what? He was, he was actually pretty helpful. Um, and I'm being, I'm being mean about this situation. Uh, so luckily I was able to, you know, he accepted my apology. I told him, Hey, I really, really appreciate what you did. I know at the time I didn't. And I certainly conveyed that to you that I didn't appreciate it. But in hindsight, two years later, I really appreciate that. And um, he's not, you know, people grow apart as they get older. He's not my best friend anymore, but he's still somebody that I keep up with and that we talk every once in a while. So you touched a little bit uh, about being uh, not wanting to be a burden or a bother to your parents or even adults. Did you ever reach a point where you realized that you were becoming a bigger burden to yourself? Oh, yeah. And it's with my symptoms, I thought at the time that I was hiding them and that I could just keep it to myself. But looking back, you know, there had to be signs that other people could pick up on And with things like self-harm and disordered eating, at least for me, whenever I engage in those behaviors, I'm not a fun person to be around. Um, I'm really irritable and I'll lose sleep over it. And obviously if if you're hungry, you're not gonna be of sound mind. Uh, And so I would lash out at family members. And so for them, it was probably really confusing because I, I was expressing my symptoms to them, but I wasn't saying where they were coming from. Um, So I would imagine it just seemed like, oh, she's being a teenager. She's being acting out and being rude. Um, But in actuality, it was these mental health symptoms that I was trying to hide. But at the end of the day, you really can't. Yeah, it has to be difficult, not only for your family members, but obviously for you as a teenager, trying to distinguish between teenage angst and symptoms of... uh, you know, a mood disorder. When were you able to realize that something else was going on? It started for me before this letter, even. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we talked earlier about the process of writing this letter and I I didn't know where to start um, because I first noticed my symptoms in fifth grade. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, But then this big moment in my treatment journey started in eighth grade. Um, Then I had a suicide attempt in college. And so I was like, which one of these, which one of these big moments do I start this letter at? Um, And I decided that, you know, the start of my treatment journey would be a good jumping off point for the letter. But I actually noticed in fifth grade, uh, because I also live with generalized anxiety disorder and things like just, you know, standing in line at a food place or going up and asking a question to the teacher, little things that most people don't have a problem with. I would just get so overwhelmed and anxious and I would have to rehearse in my head like 10 or 15 times what I was going to say. And I still do that sometimes with phone calls. Um, But I noticed talking to my friends at the time that they weren't going through that. Um, In fifth grade is when my disordered eating patterns started as well. And so I, I knew that those weren't something that my friends were, at least most of my my friends were, um, were going through. So I knew something was off there, but, um, I didn't realize that other people experienced those things too. I thought it was just me. Uh, and so I thought if I asked for help, nobody would understand. So it wouldn't really be that helpful. Uh, but you know, as I mentioned in the letter, in the letter, as I got older, I realized that other people have gone through the exact same thing. Um, and I mentioned in the letter as well how important groups are to me. Uh-huh. And when I went to the first one, when I was in inpatient treatment, I was so nervous and so afraid to say anything. And I was still kind of in that headspace where I thought nobody's going to understand what, why even bother. And then I noticed that there was a group of probably about 15 of us together. Um, I noticed that every time one of them would say something, at least one other person would say, yeah, yeah, I've been through something pretty similar to that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow. So, you know, even in this small group of 15 people, which is a very selective group, of course, people can understand and they can relate and empathize and help. Uh, And that's something I didn't realize as a kid. Olivia, you talked a little bit about your experience with hospitalization. And obviously, this can be very scary for a young person. If you had one piece of advice to give, um, what would it be? I would say give it time. Uh, I wrote in my letter about how the first two days I was just shaking and just curled in on myself. And it's, it's a new environment and it can be scary, at least in my case, it, it certainly was to be with, you know, I was with a group of about 15 adults because I had turned 18. So I was, I was the second youngest person there in my group. Uh, and it was, it was a totally new experience and something I'd never gone through. And what you see on television and, and in movies isn't, isn't the case, you know, as, as it often is media doesn't portray it in the way that it really is. Uh, So I wish that I could go back and tell myself, give it time, give it 24 or 48 hours, and then put your all into it. You know, go to, in the letter I mentioned, it was strongly suggested that you go to the support groups. um, And they would, they would measure and keep an eye on how often you you interacted with other people and what programs you you went to and engaged with. And I know that some people were just going through the motions because they wanted to get out. But for me, it was really important to 
actually put myself out there and really try to engage because I was there to get treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't there to spend a week, spend a week in the hospital, you know, it's certainly not a vacation. So if I was going to be there, I wanted to get some benefit from it and I wanted to advance my path to, to wellness and recovery. So I would say, you know, just give it time, give yourself time to settle in and then don't just go through the motions, actually try to get something positive out of the experience. You talked about media portrayal of hospitalization. Is there one thing that you would say our media gets completely wrong about that process or that, that, that experience? I would say just the types of people that you encounter, because a lot of times it's portrayed as really scary people and dangerous people in the media. And that, that's not the case. It's just everyday people. Um, there, was, there was a woman in there who started every day with yoga. And there was um, somebody that just talked about wanting to get out and see her kid again. Um, and we would work puzzles together and color. And it was just, it wasn't a scary environment. There weren't these, you know, big bad wolves around every corner. Um, It was just everybody was there to get help. Yeah, you talked about in your letter, the DBSA support groups, the NAMI support groups. Was it after your inpatient stay that you decided to get more peer support? Yeah, that's when I first decided to get peer support, period. Um, Because it was something that I had seen before in like TV shows and movies mm-hmm. and it always seemed kind of fake and hokey and goofy. Um, but after I was receiving treatment inpatient, it was just such a game changer for me to know that other people could understand and could relate. And that was something that I didn't want to give up because that felt really important to me for my recovery, you know, because like I said, I I didn't want to get help because I thought no one would understand. So now that I had this big realization that people did, I wanted to keep it that way. Um, And so I started going to weekly DBSA meetings in my hometown. And then I didn't know if I was going to go back to college or not for, uh, for my second semester, because it was two hours away from home. And it was just kind of a scary big change but I decided that I would, uh, and I got referred to a campus counselor, which was, he was great. And then also the NAMI groups that met every other week. And I mentioned this in my letter, but it's wild to think looking back, every other week wasn't enough for me. And so I said, I need to start something where it's gonna be every week, because I know if if twice a month isn't enough for me, it's not enough for other people too. Um, And so I started my own chapter. Yeah, you you talked about that, and actually, it's a it's a really great part of your letter when you you start talking about developing this own voice and like understanding that if you're having these needs, that there are other people out there who who also have this longing. Was talking to peers? Did you know that was the next step that you wanted to take? I did, yeah. Um, and I I mentioned later that I started giving talks to groups of people, but I wouldn't have been able to do that without talking to peers first Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, stigma is very real and it's not only real in the general population, but also among us, you know, among peers, there have been times throughout my life where I haven't wanted to open up about 
living with a mental health condition. Um, and there have been times where I've maybe felt ashamed and didn't want anybody to know. And so peer support was a big step in starting to break down some of that stigma in myself, which mm -hmm. later allowed me to talk to anybody about mental health. When you started this journey of uh, starting your own support group and starting to do peer support on your own, what were some of the challenges for you? Uh, one big challenge was just logistically getting the word out. Um, so luckily for the first semester, I was able to send out an all student email on campus and that got a lot of buzz and a lot of people obviously heard about the group through that. Mm -hmm. um, but after that, it was more challenging just drawing with social media and flyers and word of mouth. Um, and eventually that was, that was the downfall of the group. We just couldn't get enough people aware that that resource was available. Um, another challenge was, you know, as a facilitator who's also a peer, mm -hmm. sometimes people will say things that get you emotionally. You know, you relate to them or it takes you back to a certain situation. And so it was a little hard to find that balance of still benefiting myself from the group and being able to share things while at the same time knowing when when to step back mm -hmm. and just kind of be a, be an observer, be a facilitator. Um, so that was a challenge as well. What are you doing now to um, help reduce stigma or what are you working on now? So right now I am a member of DBSA's Young Adult Council and we put out almost a project every month for DBSA and we have members across the country. So we, we meet virtually as we always have, even before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and we, we collaborate together on projects and some of them are resource-based and others are stigma-based. Um, really just anything that a young adult, somebody at the same point in their life as I am would need. Obviously, we just talked about your accomplishments. We talked about your work with YAC. We talked about your accomplishments in college and your letter. What is something that you want your younger self to take away from the leadership accomplishments you've made? I think that everything that I went through, as horrible as it was in middle school, high school, early college, it all served a purpose uh, because I... You know, I don't like to say, oh, well, my work is helping save lives. And I don't, I don't like to think of myself as that important or on a high horse. But there were times in college where somebody was in a crisis mm -hmm. and their friends through the talks that I would give would know, hey, that's somebody that's our age that has sort of an idea what they're talking about and can direct this person to resources. Uh, and so there was, there was once where I sat with a friend for gosh, it was, it was overnight. It was more than 12 hours. Wow. Um, they were in a crisis and I'm glad that I was there that day because I don't know that, you know, if you haven't experienced that firsthand, it can be kind of hard to understand and offer the right resources and direct them to the right supports. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, you know, it was actually net good that I went through these things. 
It's so important that there are peers everywhere, right? Whether they're in school or at your job or wherever, that there is some form of peer support. Is there a general wellness tip that you would like to share? Something that you do every single day that helps you out that you think our audience will benefit from? I think for me, it's listening to my body, what it needs physically. As I mentioned before, you know, if you're hungry or if you're thirsty or if you're tired, everything's connected. So if you're thrown off on one of those areas, you're not the best you can be mentally. Um, So like yesterday before work, I was exhausted. And so I said, you know what? I just need to listen to my body, put off my to-do list a little bit, take an hour nap before I go to work. Um, You know, today when I woke up right before we were um, set to record this podcast, I was like, "Mm, do I need to have breakfast? Yes or no. And then I said, I'm going to have breakfast so I can be at the top of my game. Um, so really just recognizing that everything is connected and you've got to take care of your body and your mind. Olivia, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know or any themes, any takeaways from the letter that you would like to leave us with? Yeah. Uh, the one thing that's still on my mind is that when I was younger, I thought asking for help was weakness. And now that I'm older, looking back, reflecting in this letter, I think it's one of the most difficult things that you can do. And so I think that, you know, it's really rewarding and it's, it shouldn't be seen as a sign of weakness. It's really strong to recognize that you need that help and then go out and get it for yourself. Thank you to Olivia for sharing her story and reminding us that asking for help is important. If you want to read Olivia's letter, submit your own letter, or learn more, you can visit us at dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof. The I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self podcast is hosted by Hannah Zeller, Programs Manager at the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, and Dante Freeman. Hey, that's me, Communications Manager at DBSA. You can find out more about DBSA support groups, especially ones in your area, by visiting dbsalliance.org support. If you like this episode, great. Tell us by rating and reviewing this podcast. We appreciate all your feedback. You can support this show and our efforts to provide hope, help, support, and education to improve the lives of those living with mood disorders by going to dbsalliance.org donate. Thank you.